Let's pray. Our Father, we want to tell out from the depths of our soul the greatness that belongs to you alone. You are solitary in your perfections. There isn't anyone else in the category with you. It's not just, God, that you are the most in your category. You are not most high and most wise and most pure only, but you exist in a category all to yourself. There is no one like you. And we thank you for stooping down and calling us to seek your face, to worship you at a throne of mercy and grace, to lift our voices and to have an audience in the highest and purest courts. God, forgive us when we, in our busyness, our pride or unbelief, when we reduce in our minds the magnitude of your love and the provisions of the new covenant. God, we pray that you would hold us captive, our, our thoughts, our imagination, what might yet be, what you might yet do in our little church here through us, what we might yet learn in following your son. So we ask that you would enlarge our scanty thought. We pray that our hearts would not say one thing at church and then have desires that are totally contrary to that when we go home. But God, we need your help there. We do want lives that speak and tell out the greatness of you, the greatness of your name, your character, the greatness of your might, the greatness of your word. And that every other name that lifts itself against Christ from east to west and north to south. That you, for love of your son, would stretch out your arm and you would send out your word. That the law would break up the hard hearts and rip away the blinder from the, from the, from the clouded eyes that can't see any need for you. And send the gospel to those who need comfort. Save them. Conquer them. For the glory of your son. Make them your children. Help us tonight as we consider. How it is that men and women and young people. Could ever talk with you. And help us to believe. That Christ could teach us. Even today. Even people like us. We ask it in his name. Amen. Mark chapter 1. <clears throat> Mark chapter 1. I want to read from verse um, 21 down through verse 35. So you know that the book of Mark is the shortest of the Gospels. It is... It has a lot of detail. Some of the detail that Mark has in his short book, it's not included in the others. But the, the glory of Mark is that it shows the activity of God, God the Son, saving us. It's just one thing act after the next, you know. And uh, most scholars think that 
Mark was written primarily for the Roman Empire, the people of Rome, who admired activity. You know, maybe not like the Greeks. They, they didn't want a lot of long dialogues and philosophical, theological concepts. But they need to know, what did he do? So, Mark chapter 1, verse 21. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. They were amazed at his, at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then, there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. They were all amazed so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Immediately, the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. And immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. When evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Well, we want to look again at the theme of following Jesus, <clears throat> in particular, uh, looking at how we follow Christ in our prayer life. And I think that that's a thing that surely for every honest Christian, it's a bit daunting to think that, that it's not just that I need to obey what Christ said about prayer, but I'm to imitate Jesus in the way he prayed. It's the same thing, uh, same basic, I think, pattern and approach that we talked about with regard to the word of God. If we're going to walk a path of obedience in, in that sweet harmony with God, hearts gladly surrendered, you know, a cheerful consecration, then we're going to have to make a lot of those two great, you know, channels of grace, the word and prayer. So when we look at how Christ responded to God's word and we look at how Christ prayed, then we have for us the happiest path. But it's not just the happiest path. I think we could agree with that. But it is also the most practical, eminently practical for the Christian it's not just the best path. It's the most practical path for the Christian. There isn't any other path that fits you now. 
I know that when we think of the prayer life of Jesus, we think I could just never pray like him. But I I want us to kind of back up from just prayer and think again that in the Christian life, the command is not just believe me, but follow me. And God has given us everything we need in the sufficiency, the glorious sufficiency of his son and in the work that he's accomplished in your soul by his spirit and what we have in the word and what we have as a body of Christians. God has given us all that we need to follow Christ. 2,000 years later, he is the perfect discipler, the, the perfect trainer on the job training. We are apprenticed to the God-man, and he can teach us. When we think about that, though, and we come to prayer, I feel like, you know, there are so many other areas that we would say, okay, I, I believe that by the grace of God, I could, I, I could do this you know, like Christ, not perfectly, but as we talked about last week, when there is an imitation, you know, you think of a child trying to write uh, his, his or her cursive letters, and you've got those pages where they're tracing out the letters at first, and their, you know, their little squiggly lines show how hard they're trying, and then you take away the the tracing paper and you give them regular paper and you say, okay, try it now on your own and you see how hard they try, you know. It's not a perfect imitation, but it is a real imitation and every believer from day one, you don't have to be a believer for 30 years. From day one, God has given you what you need to begin to follow and that includes how we hold a conversation between our soul and God. But we're going to have to believe him because I don't think that any of us will look in the mirror and say, well, when I look in the mirror, I think I, could, I can do this. You know, we, we can't. So by the help of God, we want to take that seriously. Now, when we look at the life of Christ in prayer, last week we looked at the why, and that is where we have to start. It doesn't do you any good to mimic some of the externals of Jesus in prayer if you don't understand why he prayed. And if you don't understand why he prayed, and that motive isn't, in fact, the same motive that moves your heart to pray, then you're really not, really not following Christ. You're just kind of parroting him. You know, you're just kind of mirroring or mocking the action. So if if he got up early, I'll get up early. If he stayed up late, I'll stay up late. If he went to church on Saturday, I guess I'll go to church on Saturday, you know, and, and then I'll be like Christ. But we know that that's not the way God works. So the change begins within the new nature, the opened eyes, the warm heart, the freed will, And the teaching of the Spirit with the Word of God. And we begin with why. And we talked about that last week. We're going to mention that again this week because it's going to play into the how. So that was last week. This week, I want us to consider uh, how he prayed. And we're only going to look at really at kind of a general approach and one example. And then next week, we'll follow on that. And then that will be it. And that certainly is not covering the prayer life of Christ in our three Wednesday nights. But it's enough to give us the introduction because we're headed to the path. Remember the map. How did Christ walk? Well, we have his map. So when we look at how Christ prayed, 
I want us to go back to the scriptures. And again, like the, the theme of how Christ responded to the word of his father, you don't have much direct description, even in the gospels, of how Jesus went about prayer. Just like you don't know how Jesus did his quiet time. And if you did, I'm sure that, you know, if we had that, we would all say, well, this is the only way to read a Bible because Jesus woke up at this time. He read this many passages. You know, I mean, we would all have the same questions for him that we have all the time. So how do you study the Bible? What's the best way to study the Bible, Jesus? Do you read one chapter a day, two chapters a day? What version are you using? And, and we would just, you know, grab onto that as if that's the key. In the same way, you don't know much about the prayer life of Christ. Last week, we looked just quickly mentioning that the Gospel of Luke mentions the praying of Jesus Christ and the teaching on prayer of Jesus Christ more than any of the other Gospel writers. But even that, it's just a, it's just a handful. So we know things like he rose early, he stayed up late. Some night, sometimes he prayed through the night before big decisions. He taught about urgency and desperateness. He taught about faith. He taught about praying in his name. I mean, there are just so many things. He taught about the connection of the word abiding in us and how that affects prayer. And what about prayer and the work of the spirit? What about prayer and obedience in, you know, as, as we walk before the Father? All those things. But for actual direct looks at the pattern of Jesus, how he prayed, you don't have much. And yet you have everything the Father knows that you need. And what God has given us is better than us getting, um, you know, uh, a book of prayer in our Bible where exactly how Jesus prayed on Mondays was spelled out for us. If that would have been better for us, he would have given it to us. So what do you have? Well, as with the word of God, we have some direct looks at Christ, not many, at how he prayed. You have a lot of teaching on prayer from Christ and others, but then you have the entire scripture, all right? So not just what Jesus says, but the entire scripture where God, from Genesis to Revelation, talks to us about how we walk in harmony with him and how there's an ongoing exchange between our soul and our God. And so, like with the Word of God, I think we could call these indirect glances at Christ's pattern. Okay, so in, if you don't remember how we approached Christ in the Word, our logic kind of goes like this. We know that Jesus was a perfect prayer. And his prayer life perfectly pleased the Father. He prayed just the way that the Father wanted him to pray. While we don't have that picture in biography, we do know what the Bible says from Genesis to Revelation about the kind of praying that pleases the Father and the kind of praying that displeases the Father. So every time you read a passage that describes what kind of prayer pleases God, then you know, except for the one category of sin and confession of sin, you know that that passage commanding or guiding in prayer was perfectly followed by the Lord Jesus. So every command in prayer, in a sense, 
knowing that he would have done it perfectly, then you have an, what I would call an indirect look at the prayer life of Christ. By the way, Psalm 119 works wonderfully for this as well because we know that Psalm 119 is 176 verses and 174 of them, 172 of them, got to get my numbers right, are 172 of the 176 are direct statements to God in prayer. So you have statements about the Bible, and we talked about looking at, Christ, at the psalmist's response to Scripture. And when it doesn't deal with personal sin, it is a picture of our Lord because he perfectly responded. You could also read Psalm 119 and see the psalmist's pleadings, his prayers, 172 of them. Direct prayers to God because we have his word. And every one of those that doesn't speak of sin, our sin, his sin, could be applied to the Lord. 172, the great majority of them do not deal with the sin of the psalmist. So you can take them as a picture, an indirect reflection of what Christ's prayer would have been like. And you can follow those. So we want to look at the commands of scripture regarding prayer. But tonight, because it's a Wednesday night, we're going to look at one. Turn, if you would, to 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17. Maybe another way of saying it other than an indirect look, think of the path of Christ. So I'm, going to, I, I'm called to follow Jesus Christ. And I have, as you're turning to 1 Thessalonians 5, I do have in the scripture, I, I do have this portrait at times of Christ praying, but not enough to, to imitate him. And then we look instead at commands and knowing that he did them, we understand that that's a... That's an indirect look. Think of it this way. You're following Christ on the path of obedience. And he's up ahead of us. You know, and, and the path, you know, meanders and takes sharp turns. And well, if he's up ahead of us a little bit and he takes a sharp turn to the right, so to speak. Then you can't, you, you can't see him. And you think, am I still following Jesus? All you have to do is look down on the path. Do you see his footprints? In the path, we say, yeah, I see, that's his footprints. I recognize them. Well, just keep putting your feet in those footprints and you will still be following him, even if at this moment you're not seeing a particular example. So the commands and how to pray, just like the commands, how to respond to the word of God, it's, it's like footprints in the path when we're not given specific examples from Christ's life. Well, 1 Thessalonians 5 as Paul is giving a series of instructions, he comes to, he just kind of, you know, begins to hit them with short, significant commands. Verse 16, rejoice always. Verse 17, pray without ceasing. Verse 18, and everything, give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And the middle one there, pray without ceasing, we want to mention tonight. Praying without ceasing. Did Jesus Christ... Did he perfectly embody that command? And we would say, well, absolutely. We know that this verse doesn't mean certain things, but what would it mean and what would it entail? So let's talk about praying without ceasing. And again, I think that when we think of a verse like this, just like when we think of praying and following Jesus Christ's pattern, it might be that you feel that this is a bit daunting so if you knew it was going to be on 1 Thessalonians 5, would you think, well, I kind of would have skipped. 
Because this is one of those verses that just make me feel so bad. You know, it's like when I read, when someone reads that verse, my conscience jumps up and gut punches me and says, I told you you weren't doing right, you know. If you're having trouble, if you, if you look in the mirror spiritually and you think, I'm not even sure that my morning prayers, you know, in my prayer closet where I, I get alone and I meet with God and, you know, in these, in these devotional times, I'm not even sure I'm doing that right. And then, then you're going to like, that's just, you know, my half an hour and I'm not doing that right. So now we're going to have, you know, even more dumped on us and we're going to even just, we're just going to fail even worse. And so it's like all bad news, but it isn't. If we think about it correctly, it is such an extraordinary privilege. And it's not just another chance to realize that you're not doing so well. For the Christian, think about it. Pray without ceasing is God's way of telling the Thessalonians and you and me that there is no moment or place or event or situation in the Christian life that would bar you from access to the highest court. Real access. I wonder if the angelic hosts ever feel shocked at the continual reality that men and women and children who have rebelled against God instead of immediately being damned to hell have been rescued, brought into his family, and then ushered into his presence time after time after time. They're allowed to come whenever they want. They're allowed to stay as long as they want. Think about what prayer is. It is you, such a small, insignificant bundle of carbon molecules that have been animated by God. We're alive, but we're, we're made of the stuff of earth. And you are, by the grace of God, allowed by faith to go into the highest courts. You remember when Job was struggling with, you know, is, why is God treating me this way? Is there some secret sin in my life? No, there isn't. But Job, you know, complains and says, if I were to try to argue with God and say, well, I'm completely guiltless, my, my own mouth would accuse me. And toward the, as the book goes on, Job says a wonderful thing. He says, how can I present my case to God? I can't reach him. In other words, a guy like Job doesn't have the right to be in the courts of a God, of the God. So how's Job even going to present his case? We know through the mediatorial work of Christ, we have access. And Job talks about that. Oh, that there was one that could lay a hand on God and lay a hand on me and be a mediator and bring us together. And Job had that in the coming Messiah, and we have that in Christ. But have you ever thought that the command, pray without ceasing, is not a, a fresh opportunity for you to blow it as a Christian? It is the most astonishing reality of, of an unexpected richness of love. That he commands those who have no right to be at that level of a court to enter in as frequently as they want, without fear of being barred. And it's not just the height of the court, the dignity of that court. We have no right to be in the presence 
of that court because it is the holy of holies. It's not the symbolic holy of holies where God manifested his glory uh, in Israel's history in the temple and the tabernacle. And in that one place, the high priest could only go once a year after all those rituals, of course, teaching us the need of the work of Christ. It is not a symbolic holy of holies. It is the real holy of holies. It is the place where the angels cover their faces before God. And you and I have access there spiritually. Even though we are not in ourselves the kind of people that should be allowed there. But in Christ, we can come as frequently as we want clean. So don't think of... 1 Thessalonians 5.17 as this kind of horrible, heavier version of a command to pray that you're going to fail. Well, what is he talking about? Obviously, he's not talking about formal prayer. Pray without ceasing, okay? Always be on your knees. We know that. I don't think anybody in church tonight would say, well, Jesus is saying that I'm supposed to always just be praying you know, like at church or on my knees beside my bed. But is there not a, a more subtle lie that comes to you? And it, it says, well, I think God means this, and that's pretty impossible for you. And you think, yeah, that is impossible. What is he speaking of? An, an ongoing, sweet, unblocked communion with God. You and God. We've read John Owen. It's your soul receiving from the Father and the Son and the Spirit these free expressions of love that are part of our rescue and then responding to Him. It's an ongoing conversation. It's, It's communion. It's an interaction between your soul and your God. It's a friendship that is being cultivated throughout the day. Why is it commanded and not just offered, you know, well, you should pray in the mornings and start your day right. And if you want to, you could pray without ceasing. I mean, you're allowed. Why is it not just a suggestion? Why is it a command? And I think the command goes back to the why of prayer. So why do we pray? We are needy people. We are people who are surrounded by needy people and we want to bring them to the mercy seat. And we, because of salvation, we do love God now. We do know him as a child knows a parent, not perfectly, but we do know him. Every Christian knows God. The new covenant provides that. And because those things don't stop, your need doesn't stop when you embrace Christ by faith. And the need of those people around you doesn't stop. And your desire to spend time with him, it doesn't go away. I mean, I know that we are aware of that or we have, you know, strong desires and weak desires. We fluctuate. But those categories are ongoing for a Christian. If The categories of why you pray are continual until the end of time. Then prayer should be continual because those things are always there. Think, just think a little bit about it. 
Your need is continual. The new birth has not removed that. Your task, and we can think of our need in that way. God has tasked us with knowing him, really believing what he says in his word, responding wholeheartedly to that, giving him in full what we owe him, not giving him in part. And it's not just as individuals, but we're to do that with other believers. And as Paul said in Colossians 1, we're to labor to bring every other believer that God brings into our life to the degree that we have that opportunity. We're to labor to bring them to completion in Christ. And Paul says, I strive to do that by the work of God or the energy of God that works within me. So certainly ongoing prayer would be needed. It's not just the task that continues. It's not just our need. Our environment shows this is ongoing. We do not live in a place that is a friend of Christ. We live in a very dry place. You remember Psalm 63, verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. Where? In a dry and weary land where there is no water. It's not that we live in a terrible place, but spiritually speaking, created things do not have what we need to supply us. So there is no friendship. There is no event. There is no thing on this planet that can really satisfy. So you are in a spiritually dry place and God will supply. And so we continue to cry out. If we think about what Paul says in Ephesians 6, we're on a battleground. So we cry out. We have enemies. So we cry out. One of the reasons we didn't talk about last time is that we also belong to a God. We're not just needy, but he is so benevolent. If you belong to a king that supplies all that you need and he gives it the first day of the week. Okay, so you got to come Sunday. So all Christians would, so to speak, line up on Sunday with open, empty hands and say, give us what we need. And he would give us exactly what we need. And he could have done it that way. But instead, this king has decided that you would be supplied everything you need for the most enviably happy life in him, the most obedient life by moment by moment by moment supplying. Our king is a continually benevolent king, so we want to be coming often and not just once a day saying our prayers or on Sundays. You remember Psalm 104. The psalmist describes all creation, and he's talking about how amazing God is. His glory is displayed. He's made all of this, and then he comes down to verse 27, and he talks about the fact that God sustains all of it, and it's a very poetic way. Listen to what he says. Psalm 104, verse 27, they all wait for you. He's talking about every animal and every human. They, your creation, they all wait for you to give them their food in due season. You give to them, they gather it up. You open your hand, they are satisfied with good. They, they take it. You hide your face, they're dismayed. 
You take away their spirit, their breath, they expire, they die and return to the dust. You send forth your spirit and they are created. You renew the face of the ground. And at the end of that psalm, he prays, let my meditation be pleasing to him. I will be glad in the Lord. In Psalm 42, when the psalmist says, I pant for God, I hunger for God. When will I appear before my God? Like a deer pants for the water brooks when it's hunted and chased. Later in that psalm, he says this, verse 8, The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and his song will be with me in the night. A prayer to the God of my life. So if God is giving in daytime and filling you with joy by giving you what you need at night, then unceasing prayer seems to be the only logical option. Charles Bridges, you remember I read the quote last week, said the Christian life is a life of constant need, constant coming to God in prayer, constant supply, constant living on God's provision, and constantly desiring more. Well, let's look now at this kind of some simple things that would go into prayer without ceasing. All right, just let me give you two matters and then we're done. The first thing has two things in it. All right, so I cheated. We actually have three things, but I thought you'd feel better if I said two kind of the bookends of our day. If we're going to pray without ceasing, then it's kind of obvious that it's going to be morning and night, and then everything in between. Turn with me back to Psalm 119. I'm sorry, I just can't seem to get away from it. In my quiet time, I was moving through it, and you know, I didn't expect it to help us with prayer but I have found it so helpful. Psalm 119, verse 147 and 148. In these verses, you have a Hebrew parallelism or kind of a Jewish mirrorism. It's when the Jews would say, you know, from east to west, God will be praised. And you know, when you read that, They don't just mean the eastern edge and the western edge. They they mean everything in between. If they say morning and night, they don't just mean, okay, a half an hour in the morning. Which half? Is it 6 to 6.30 a.m.? What what time at night? They mean from beginning to end and everything in between. Alpha and omega. He's the first. He's the last. But he's everything in between. So we got that picture here, but I do want us to talk about mornings and evenings and following Jesus Christ as prayers. Look at verse 147. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I wait for your words. My eyes anticipate the night watches that I may meditate on your word. So, of course, we have the word here, but we also have this prayer life, morning and evening. The bookends of the day, starting the day by anchoring the soul to God. Think of the uh, Clyde Cranford in his book, I believe. I remember him talking about it, but I think it got into his book. He describes, you know, meeting with God first thing in the morning. 
It's like a, a boat that has an anchor. And that anchor is going to latch on to the first thing that it, you know, runs across. So you can choose to anchor it to the realities of God. And so, you know, for the rest of the day, there's a sense in which you're tethered to this reality. God is the environment you're living in. You're conscious of that. If not, if you get busy and, you know, you skip the time of meeting with God, which happens sometimes, don't you find that your heart has this anchor that will attach to something? And it may be business, it may be family, the kids, what's going to happen that day. It grabs hold of something and that seems to be stubbornly gripped the rest of the day. So use those early hours or early minutes, which have such a value way out of proportion to the amount of time it would take to hook the, the desires of your soul that day to him in prayer, in the word. In Psalm 119, 147, the Hebrew language is so perfectly helpful. It's picturesque. Greek language is philosophical. It has all these very precise ways of describing concepts. Hebrew language doesn't have that. It's very concrete. And, you know, it's just so simple in many ways. So it's wonderful for kind of painting pictures in front of our eyes. And these two verses are no exception. In verse 147 and in verse 148... The New American Standard translates the same Hebrew word differently. There's no need to, except perhaps the translators felt that it would sound better if you didn't just repeat the word over and over. So the word I'm talking about in the New American Standard is the word rise. I rise before dawn. And then verse 148, it's translated anticipate. Well, you wouldn't say my eyes rise at night and you could say, I anticipate the dawn. Anticipate really is a great one. The King James says prevent, right? How do you prevent the night watches? What does he mean prevent? Like I stopped, I stopped the dawn and I stopped the evening. There are a number of ways to translate it. They're not bad ways. Some of them just aren't as, as clear to us as others, you know, hundreds of years later. Here's the Hebrew word. It means, anticipates very close. It means to get up and go to meet a person while they're still headed your way. So you anticipate the visit. And instead of waiting for them to get there, you go out. Be because of whatever, you know, but for us, we think of because of love. So imagine that, you know, uh, parents, grandparents, your children have grown up, they've had their own kids, they go far away, and imagine, you know, they're coming home this weekend, and you're so excited because you don't get to see them very often, and so you hear their car pull up, you see it's them, and you know, you say, hey, they're here, you know, what do you do? Do you run and sit down in your favorite lazy boy chair and say, well, they'll get here in good time, no need to rush it? No, like, you go outside, 
You say, let me help you with your bags. If you have grandkids, you know, you get all down on their level. Hey, man, how are you? Grandpa, so happy to see you. If it's just your kids, you know, hey, how have you been? Great to see you. Let me carry that. We go out of the house and meet them before they get in the front door because we're excited. We anticipate their visit. So it's, that's the word. In the morning, I... I get up and I go meet someone before they, before they get all the way to me. I anticipate their visit and I meet them. And in the evening, I know that in the evening I can have some time, just me and them. Everybody else will go to bed. So it's just, it's going to be some time where I can just sit down. Again, you think of adult children, everybody's to bed, the kids are in bed, the grandkids are in bed. And, and you look forward to that, you think, because we can just talk. You know, adult talk. How have you really been? So you, you stay up extra late, anticipating that you'll be able to spend time with them. That's the word he uses here. Love is not satisfied to just wait until the appointed time. Well, we could say, I usually read my Bible between 7 and 7.30. Do you... Do you never want to wake up early so as to anticipate an opportunity to have more time with him? What time do you go to bed? Well, I usually go to bed at, you know, 10 or 11. That's not when I go to bed. I wish I went to bed at 10 or 11. Do you never stay up a little later anticipating an opportunity for just everybody else is in bed? It's just you and him. When we think of following the pattern of Jesus Christ in his prayer, this is very simple, but I think it would be quite transforming if we could just be people that could say, by the grace of God, Jesus has taught me how to anticipate the morning and to anticipate the night watches when everybody else is asleep, before the kids climb all over me, and after they go to bed, I anticipate those times. I have a number of examples from history. Some of them you've heard before, but I think it might be good to hear them again. McShane is one that we've said a lot. McShane, of course, said, give your best part of the day to the Lord. Not the part, you know, that's kind of the leftover, you know, when, you're, when your brain is fuzzy and you just don't have, it. he talked about energy of soul to deal with God. McShane's the one, of course, that said, make sure that you, meet with God. You see him before you see the face of any human. We would have to throw in phones, iPads, and computers, and television screens. Such a simple thing. The priority of meeting him. I anticipate the kings passing by. I'm going to run out a little early. Or in the evening, like the, like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, when Jesus said, you know, they're walking with Jesus. They don't recognize him yet, but he's something different. You know, they know he's a godly man. They don't yet see that he's the Lord. And they, when he says, well, I'm just going to keep on traveling. And they say, well, our hotel's right here. And they notice he's going to keep going. No, no, no. Stay. Have supper. Don't leave yet. And they said, their hearts burned within them. Do you anticipate the night watches? No, no, Lord, don't, don't go yet. I still have a half an hour left in me before I pass out. 
I anticipate some time alone with you at the end of my day. Andrew Bernard, best friend of McShane, the one that wrote McShane's memoirs, if you read his diary, you see him in college over and over really wrestling as a baby Christian with prayer. How much am I supposed to do? And one of the things he did was he made it a determination to to try to prune out of his life, especially in the evenings, things that kind of kept him up late for no reason, you know, kind of just careless things so that he could get to bed at a little better time so that he could get up at a little better time so that he could anticipate the meeting with the Lord. Later, after he's kind of gotten rid of the extra stuff in his life that he felt was not helpful, I mean, he still had his friendships and things. Later, he said, well, not much more I can get rid of, but I can, I can sleep a little less. So he was like, seven hours, too much, way too much. So I can cut it back to six. And It's a young Christian anticipating the dawn meeting with his king and the evening, the night watches. And if you read the life of Benar, Andrew Benar, for the next, that was when he was in his early 20s, for the next 60 years, he lives a faithful, useful life as a pastor in Scotland. And he is never the superstar that Robert Murray McShane was, even though McShane died at age 29. You read Bernard's diary, which I think is just, a, it's like a prayer journal. And he mentions every year the, the anniversary of McShane's death. And into his 80s, he'll tell you, I have not yet reached my friend's level of consecration. That's probably not as accurate as he thought it was. But though he was never the extraordinary preacher, he was faithful and his prayer life from those early college efforts to anticipate the rest of his life, it set the course. He never stopped being an extraordinary prayer. Another person, uh, I'll read you Luther next week because I left my book upstairs and and it's a long quote and I don't want to hash it up. Let me give you just uh, one more. Hudson Taylor, I've mentioned him before, but do you remember there was a time in Taylor's life and some of you are reading his biography right now and that is worth its weight in gold. Uh, He's an older man. He already has nearly a thousand other missionaries working under him and God is supplying it all through answer to prayer. He told him when they would come out there that they would have spiritual brothers and sisters supporting them, but they would have no money from Hudson Taylor. He would not promise to give him a penny because he couldn't. But he said, if God sends you, He will, and the Lord used that to show people that he could be trusted. So at the later stages of his missionary career, he was back in Europe, and he was traveling through Europe, meeting with heads of denominations who were kind of curious, what is this China Inland Mission, and should we send our guys through the China Inland Mission? Is, you know, what's their theology? How do they approach things? Now, as he was on a train heading another day, very long days, it was just after sunrise, um, and he was there in the train as the sun's rising, sun is rising. There's somebody else in the little car facing him, and Hudson Taylor's got his eyes closed before sunrise and then after the sun comes up. And finally, he opens his eyes, and the man says, Oh, did you get a good nap? And Taylor said, Well, I don't 
know what nap you're referring to. He said, I ha- I'm a missionary. And he said, ever since he went to the field and had other people working under him, the sun has not risen once before I have laid every missionary in the China Inland Mission at the throne of grace. He prayed for every worker before sunrise. Now you think, well, what time did he go to bed, you know? Did he go to bed when Trey goes to bed? Because Trey goes to bed like five. Not really, nine. What time did he go to bed? Well, if you keep reading, another time he's traveling through the mountains. He's taking some men up to northern China. And he's an old man in the, at this time. You know, he's like 50s or 60s. And he's got a group of guys that are in their 20s. One of them is C.T. Studd. These are college grads from Cambridge. So they are all athletes and young. And they look at this frail older guy and they think, uh, it won't be any trouble keeping up with him, but he's hardy and he's used to it. So he travels and they walk through the mountains and into northern China and through the terrible heat. And he just, it kills him. You know, the young guys are, their feet are bleeding and, and they're tired. And so whenever they would arrive at the place where they're staying that night, Taylor would tell them, you know, just wash your feet, get a bath, rest. He would make them supper you know, they would pray together. They would go to sleep. And as they go to sleep, they, they write in their journals that Taylor wasn't going to sleep. He was still up anticipating the night watches. The college kids are going to bed. He can meet just with the Lord. Then when they woke up, they wrote in their journals. Same thing. We look over. The sun hasn't risen. And Hudson Taylor is there with this little candle he carried. And he is reading in his Greek New Testament and, and his Chinese Bible And he's writing in his journal and he's meeting with God. And we're not Hudson Taylors. We're not these guys. But you and I can anticipate meeting with the Lord early, whatever that is for you, and the night watches. Well, let me draw this to a close. And we'll pick up with this next week. Is... Are you a person from morning to evening and then throughout the day, you know, like, like Brother Lawrence, cultivating an awareness of God's awareness of you, just turning your heart in silent prayer to God throughout the day. God, I need you. I yield to you. Teach me. Those little silent prayers throughout the, the day where you never have to leave his presence. Are we not doing that? Are our prayers limited to Sundays and to 15 minutes in the morning and then, you know, before supper, someone needs to say a prayer before we eat? If they are limited to that, is it because we are not aware of the why of prayer like we should be? So our neediness escapes us as we're busy, The needs of those around us escape us. We just don't even think of it. And our desire for the nearness of God, we say, well, I'm at work. I'm at school. When I first came to Christ, and Clyde Cranford did lead me to Christ and then talked with me a lot about walking with Christ, one of the things he talked about all the time was just living with the constant communication between your soul and God. It changed everything. 
It didn't replace the mornings and the evenings, but it, it made them flow into every other part of the day just to be able to carry on the friendship with my God throughout the day. It, if Christ commands us to follow him and we know that he anticipated the mornings and the night watches to be with his father, that he prayed without ceasing, then he will teach every Christian here who wants to know how to pray like he prayed. And you can just begin to take, that's just one example, you can begin to take any of the commands about prayer and realizing that our Lord did that perfectly and he's the perfect teacher. You can take that, put it in your journal, study it in its context, compare it to other passages that say the same thing, talk to God about it, but don't leave it alone until in some measure you are imitating your Lord in that new way, whatever that verse contains. Well, we'll pray and be dismissed. Our Father, we thank you for the extraordinary privilege of access to the highest court, to the cleanest place. And you, you know, Lord, that after, after coming to you, after having our eyes open, it does bother us that we sin against you. It does bother us that our prayers are cold when you are so worthy and we would despair if we were not allowed to look to him. Not only as our righteousness, who, the one who prayed perfectly on our behalf, but as our teacher, the Almighty, our instructor. So teach us. Teach us how to pray without ceasing, how to anticipate the dawn and the night watches, to get up and meet you halfway out of eagerness so that we can know something more of that joy that Christ knew. Help us to see his footprints. Even in these commands, we ask it in his name. Amen.